Today's reading uh, comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. One, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let, it, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may also we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for bringing us to uh, this place at this time to hear from your word. Uh, God, we are are thankful for that. Uh, God, I pray that uh, for those in this room who have walked with you uh, for a long time, that you would uh, remind them of the goodness of the gospel that they have uh, that they believed in the beginning, and that this would be a, a warm encouragement to them to do so. I pray for those friends in this room who have, uh, have not come to know you yet, and they're here because they're curious or uh, investigating the things of Christianity, and I pray that you would uh, also give them ears to hear, help them to use this time uh, in a wise way um, to hear uh, the message of the gospel that is true. And so I pray that you would do that in all of us uh, this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, the title of this, this message is Reflexive Doctrine. So if you've never heard that, that word reflexive, one of the definitions for the word, the way I intended it to be heard, is of an action performed as a reflex without conscious thought. So an action performed as a reflex without conscious thought. So over the last few weeks, we have discovered that John, while not explicitly, has offered up a, a, a couple of different tests for the sake of bringing some reflexiveness to the church as they experience very real opposition. That their, their lives are, are, are supposed to be, or, or should be, reflexive demonstrations of the grace of God. So the first test, test found in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, was the test of obedience, which I call reflexive obedience, meaning because someone is walking in the light of Christ, their obedience will be, while not perfect, reflexive in regards to the gospel. 
They will be responding in obedience to the message of the gospel. The second test found in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, was the test of reflexive love. So it's a love that has been first shown to us by God in Christ. So we have this in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall, God's first reaction, his first reflex, was not striking Adam and Eve dead on the spot. Or even, if you notice in in Genesis chapter 3, sending them out of the garden immediately. That doesn't happen. His first reaction, his first reflex was mercy, grace, and love. And this is what we are called to show toward our our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also our neighbors. So showing that that Christ's love pushes beyond our preferences, that it pushes uh, beyond the things that may annoy us or make us uncomfortable about each other to offer the hospitable love of Christ. And then the third test found in today's text is the test of doctrine or reflexive doctrine. Meaning what you believe is what you live and what you lean into when when doubts arise and when you also experience opposition in the same way as as the readers of 1 John did. So instead of, of deconstructing our faith, we are constructing it around right doctrine found in the scriptures. So this is what Paul was communicating to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." So John, this morning in our text, is following the same pattern as he warns the church about their very real enemies, which is an important task to take on as the church. In in the book, The Art of War, I'm sure some some of you have read that book, the author says this. He says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And so knowing what you believe, knowing the core doctrines that you hold on to as a follower of Christ are important because they inform your heart and mind as you are sent out into the battle to confront the darkness. So John has a similar goal with his readers, again, to to that which they have believed, and he's pointing them back to this this, this gospel that they first believed in uh, from the beginning. So, and he's contrasting two different groups in the passage, two different groups in the passage uh, that he's looking at. And we're going to look at those two groups specifically. Uh, so there'll be three points. So we'll look at those two groups specifically. So one is the Antichrist, plural. 
So those, those believing and proclaiming false doctrine. And then you have the anointed, those who believe true doctrine. And then thirdly, we'll look at the righteous one, Jesus, and how he brings all of this together. So the Antichrist, the anointed, and the righteous one. So the Antichrist. In verse 18, um, there's some observations that we can make here. So the first thing is John says to them, Children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Now, before we start thinking that, that John has some kind of flair for the dramatic, we have to understand why he would say something like this, because it does sound a bit on the crazy side. This is the last hour, John. Like it, it, it builds into to, to the conversation maybe some fear and anticipation. But this is simply answered for us in the next words of verse 18. Look there with me. So children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So why does John say this? Well, because Jesus said it would happen in this exact way. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and they ask him this question. Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they were just as curious about the end times as we all are still curious about the end times. They wanted to know what is going to be, what is that going to look like? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so this last hour that John speaks of is still where we live and breathe today. It wasn't just uh, during the first century. We are dwelling in the midst of the already and the not yet. So, so the first advent of Christ, what we are beginning to celebrate today on the first Sunday of Advent, has been fulfilled. We read about it in the scriptures. That's what we're studying right now. These, these letters that were written are written to the church because the first advent has been fulfilled. Christ has come. He has come. But still, there is the second advent. Jesus' second coming is still to come. It is something that we are all awaiting. So the first advent helps us kind of trains us how to wait for the second advent. And that's what it does for us. And this in-between period between the advents is where we find ourselves today. And it's what John calls the last hour. We are in the last hour. So that's the first observation. The second observation we can make is the main idea that John is trying to get across here, which is simply... There are those who are for Christ, and there are those who are not. There are those who are for Christ, and there are those who are not. So this seems very obvious and very easy to grasp to us, I'm sure. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the news uh, or or scroll through your news feed on your phone, uh, and and maybe even just looking at the world around you, like not just the world outside, but even the people that you work with or you go to school with, and you know that evil abounds in this world. I mean, there is no doubt about that in any of your minds. 
But remember the opponents of the church here that John is writing about. They are the ones who have been a part of the church. These were people who have, who have shared the table with John's readers. They use the language of Christianity. They, they have some of the same practices of Christianity and the church. And yet, despite all of this, and despite all of their language and all of their, their practices that are very similar, John refers to these people, human beings, as the Antichrist. Because they were teaching a different gospel, also known as heresy. And the heresy that was being practiced here was what is known as Gnosticism. Not a word we, all, we commonly use, but, it, but in her book, uh, Another Gospel, Elisa Childers says this about Gnosticism. She says, Gnostics believed that Jesus came not to save us from sin, but to impart special knowledge that would essentially lead us to participate in the pleroma, which is just a word that means the totality of who God is. To find this knowledge, Gnostics believe, is to find salvation. So obviously, this caused division within the churches John is writing, and those who had left the church are the ones John is identifying as these antichrists. And this wasn't John being petty either because some of the members of his church uh, were going, were decided to, to join the church down the street and now he's labeling them all antichrist. That is not what John is doing here. What John is doing here is being a good pastor. He, he's being boldly honest because these were people who sought to deceive the Christians, who sought to deceive the churches. So they are literally those who are against Christ or seeking to serve as an imposter to Christ, as Jesus said would happen. They will come in my name and they will lead many astray. Now there is much to be said about uh, the Antichrist. I'm sure some of you, you, know, you have read the Left Behind book series, which are horrible, but uh, you, that might pique your interest, and you say, oh, the Antichrist, let's, let's hear more about that, but, but it is it's a very important uh, 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 character in the Bible. Other passages in the New Testament refer to the Antichrist as, as the man of lawlessness, or simply the beast in Revelation chapter 13, but for John, it was those who opposed the gospel of Christ and were simply showing themselves to be, despite their language and practices, anti-Christ, anti-Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean we need to call everyone who disagrees with us the anti-Christ. Don't do that this afternoon on Facebook or anywhere, because this is not John's intent for us. Rather, what John wants his readers to see is the evil of schism, and of doctrinal divisions in the Christian community and how it can rip the church apart and lead many astray. That, that, that erroneous teaching that is anti-gospel has to be named for what it is and have its origins, has it, have its roots exposed for all to see. I read a book this summer titled uh, Against Liberal Theology, and the subtitle was Putting the Brakes on Progressive Christianity by a, a man named Roger Olson, who identifies himself as a liberal Christian, which is, anyways, um, 
But he writes this, and it's, it's very compelling. It's a, it's, it was a good book. He writes, anything that is compa- compatible with everything is nothing. So anything that is compatible with everything is nothing. If Christianity is to mean something, it has to have some shape, if not boundaries. He goes on to say later, speaking about liberal and progressive Christians, he says they have to cut the cord of continuity so radically that what they teach as modern Christianity is actually counterfeit Christianity, a false gospel apostasy, or I would add heresy. So this, this line of belief that is, that is seen in 1 John, in the churches in 1 John, is still very much with us today. Now we recognize it under this name, uh, this popular name of progressive Christianity. So Elisa Childers writes this, again, speaking about Gnosticism and how it is like progressive Christianity, she writes this, quote, like progressive Christianity we find in our culture, now talking about Gnosticism, it mimics Christianity in many ways, using some of the same language and even acknowledging the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. It imitated the sacraments. It used scripture to support its ideas. It believed it was the true expression of Christianity. End quote. Well, thankfully, John sees through this whole charade and so identifies those who are anti-Christ in two ways. First, in verse 19, look there with me. John says, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. So a very clear distinguishing mark that sets these people apart is that they left the body of Christ. That's what John says. They, they walked away, and it wasn't just them changing churches. I don't want you to hear that at all, okay? It wasn't just them changing churches. They walked away from that which is true. They, they chose the way of darkness instead of the way of light. So before moving on, there are two doctrines here that, that must be pointed out that I want you to see uh, in light of what John says here, they went out from us, Okay? The first doctrine we see is the perseverance of the saints. So so this simple doctrine that says those who believe the gospel will persevere, will endure until the end, and those who don't, those who don't believe, will not persevere. And this isn't because uh, salvation is the reward of endurance, that if we just work really hard and try really hard that, that we will attain salvation. No, endurance is the hallmark of faith. You endure because Jesus has saved you. You don't endure so that you can save yourself. To Jesus' own words from Mark chapter 14, verse 14, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The second doctrine that we see here, John mentions in light of they went out from us, it's not explicit, um, but it has to do with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the theology of the church, specifically church membership. 
So let me, let me be first to, I mean, just say it again that, that, and to be clear of what I am not saying here, okay? This is not those who choose to leave our fellowship here at Christ the King and that we now label as antichrists, okay? We, we don't do that. This is why we have a church covenant. We have a church covenant that we sign and we agree to and we read aloud at every members meeting um, that those who leave this place will go and join a similar church body that preaches the gospel clearly and effectively. That's something that we encourage. But church membership of a local church does give us a measuring rod, as it did for John. It gives us a measuring rod of who is in and who is out. So when someone joins your church, they are essentially saying uh, they believe what you believe, at least on the basic doctrine, gospel uh, ideas and, and agree to put themselves under the leadership of that church, but also to be held accountable by its members according to the scriptures. And so by that, we know who to pursue and how to pursue them if they are members of our church because God's word sets this standard for us. So John sees that these men and women are not adhering to the very basic tenets of the gospel and, on top of that, seeking to lead others astray with a false gospel. So he can and does use strong language to let his leaders know what is going on here. These people who once lived life together with you have not endured and they are now against Christ. They are imposters. Don't listen to them and don't follow them. Well, verses 22 and 23, John gives his second indicator on how to identify Antichrist. And he lets us know what it is specifically that gives John permission to offer his sweeping judgment against the Antichrist, and that is they deny the very crux of Christianity. They deny the very foundation of our faith, which is what we remember during this Advent season, the incarnation of Jesus. They deny God made flesh. And so verse 22, John asked the question very directly, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So in other words, those who deny that Jesus is the Christ are not just denying one small truth about our faith. They're not disagreeing over baptism or how you should take communion or, or something very open-handed and basic. But Christianity in its entirety, everything about Christianity hinges on the incarnation. And they deny it. So if you deny the Son, you are denying the Father. If you deny the Father, you deny the Son because Jesus is the human display of the Father. So you can't have one and deny the other. So verse 22 is a shorthand version of saying these Antichrist Christology, what they believe about Jesus, involved a denial that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. God's Son come in the flesh and whose death was real and vicarious. So what does one reject when denying the incarnation? 
Well, first, they, they reject the very revelation of God in space and time through Christ. And I don't mean outer space. I mean that Jesus actually was in space. He was actually filled up space on this earth. So to deny the incarnation is to deny that Jesus ever did that, that he ever existed. And then secondly, what this denies is our hope of salvation. The incarnational reality of Christ is essential to our salvation. One commentator said, I think this is John Stott, he says, it is true union of God and flesh, the complete fusion of divinity and humanity that makes Christ's sacrificial death potent. He represented our humanity at the cross by truly bearing our humanity all the way to Golgotha, meaning he lived a full life. He was born, he lived, and he died. And he now represents our humanity before the Father by truly bearing our transformed humanity before him in the resurrection and ascension, which is key. Let me read that again, because that's an incredible truth. And he now represents our humanity before the Father by truly bearing our transformed humanity before him in the resurrection and ascension. So, so Jesus uh, in the flesh is representing us in our, in our perfect form before the Father right now, which means you have no need to be tore up over your sin or, or to think for some reason that God doesn't accept you because you have sin, because Jesus is before the Father in your perfect form validating you, saying that you are forgiven. So fundamentally, without the incarnation, the center is removed from Christianity. Without the the incarnation, Christianity is left flat and ineffective. There would be no reason for us to gather here. There would be no reason for us to sing these songs if the incarnation is removed. And even anything that we want to pursue, so we have this, these, the people who want to pursue uh, justice, which we should all be pursuing justice, but we want to make that the, the number one thing. Apart from the incarn- incarnation, that makes no sense. Why pursue justice? Why fight for um, uh, 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 pro-life uh, laws and, and things like that? Why, why, did, why would that make sense if it wasn't for the incarnation? Why pursue peace? Why pursue forgiveness? Why be faithful to your spouse? The incarnation is essential to all of this. And so we must be diligent to uphold it, proclaim it, and live it out in our own lives, day to day, moment by moment. That as Christ dwelled upon our world in the flesh, we too dwell upon the world as his ambassadors, his anointed one, as John calls his readers in our second point. Look at verses 20 through 21. John writes, But you have been anointed by the Holy Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So the term anoint that John uses here, or anointed or anointing, John is, is used throughout the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament word. It's used throughout the Old Testament, and it was to symbolize a setting apart of a particular person as either a king 
or a priest. It's the only, only way it was used. And so in the New Testament, John is, is one of the only uh, writers in the New Testament to actually employ these words in what he's writing. He uses it in the Gospels, but he also uses it here in his letters. And the reason John uses this word is to counteract the teachings of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist are the ones who believe they are the anointed ones. That they have received some sort of special revelation or special knowledge different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So John turns this idea of anointing away from the false teachers and says they have no anointing. And then he applies it to the church. He applies it to his readers. And you can't help but think that him and uh, Peter probably sat around and talked about this because Peter uses similar language. That you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those in which you are anointed. And he says that it is actually they, God's people, who are the anointed ones because it, because it is they that have believed the message that has been proclaimed to them from the beginning and have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and have been persevering in it. Look at verses 24 through 27. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But, at his anoint, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So they are a set-apart people, and their perseverance in the midst of false teaching and opposition shows them this. So this is an affirmation of their faith that John is giving to, to them here. John communicates this idea of abiding five times in verses 24 through 28 because he knows that it's just as easy for his readers to fall away as it was for these false teachers. So John urges them, abide in what you've heard from the beginning. Abide in the gospel message. Abide in the gospel and you will abide in the Son and the Father. The anointing from the Holy Spirit abides in you. And then twice he says, abide in him, abide in him. And this abiding happens because, as was said in verse 27, you have received the anointing of the Spirit and that anointing abides in you. It is within you. So pointing back to what he, he said already in verse 20, John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. So what John wants his readers to understand is that despite the opposition from the false teachers who, who assumed that they have all the knowledge, that's what Gnostics meant, was that they had all of the knowledge, all the spiritual revelation that they needed, despite all of that, John is saying the Holy Spirit remains in you, the church. That by his Spirit, God himself dwell and dwells them and all those who call on the name of Christ to save them. And, and, this, and this indwelling of God within the believer is the most fundamental defense against the deceptions of this world. So much so that John makes this uh, statement that makes people like me, nervous. 
You don't need these human teachers to teach you because you have all you need from the Spirit's presence in your life. And he is the one who teaches you what is true. So to be clear, save my job here, the primary allusion here is to the teaching of the false teachers who wanted to lead John's readers astray. This is why John says in verse 20 that they have been anointed by the Spirit and you have all knowledge. Because you have been anointed with the Spirit, you are the one who has all knowledge, not these false teachers. So in this, in this knowledge he refers to is the subject under discussion, which is the denial that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son come in the flesh. So John then says, nothing the readers need, no, no matter no, about this matter, about the, Jesus coming in the flesh, has to be learned from these false teachers. They have no new revelation about that. You don't need to learn from them. You don't need to be taught by them. The Spirit's job, just so you know, Christian, the Spirit's main occupation as it indwells you is to remind you of who Jesus is. That's it. He is there to remind you of who Jesus is, and that same Spirit is in you. It abides in you, and is doing that work even now. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the, 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 the helper, the Holy Spirit, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It will remind you of Jesus himself and everything that Jesus taught. So John keeps referring back to the message they have heard from the beginning because it is the very word of God that they have heard, which is the message of the gospel. That God became flesh, lived amongst us, suffered and died innocently for our sin and rose again so that we would have an advocate before the Father, so that we would be at peace with God. Someone who represents us, again, in our perfect state, King Jesus. And Jesus promises his abiding presence with us in John 15, verses 1 through 11. This is one of John's favorite words here, abide, because it's a word that Jesus uses. And he says this, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. So abiding in the Word and in His Spirit is, is what keeps us from believing the lies of this world and keeps us from falling away from Christ. So who is the one who makes us righteous and keeps us righteous? Because, because as our final point says, He is the righteous one. Look at verses 28 and 29. And now, little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So just as he did in verse 18, John does again in verse 28, appealing to his readers as children. Maybe, you, maybe you've caught that already. Just so you know, this is, this is in no way demeaning to his readers. John sees himself as their spiritual father who is raising and nurturing them in the faith. Quite simply, he cares deeply for them. And he wants them to understand who they are by reminding them whose they are. And so remember, the test is to have a, a, a doctrine that is reflexive, a doctrine that can not only respond well to adversity, but can also respond to truth with confidence. Look at verse 28 again. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John is, was an eyewitness of everything about Jesus. That is fact. That is not a myth. John was an eyewitness of everything about Jesus, including the angel's words in Acts 1 when uh, Jesus ascends into heaven and these angels come and, and are just watching the disciples kind of look up into the skies and they say these words to the disciples. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a promise. So John, who has witnessed all of these things and heard these words from heavenly beings, is saying to his readers, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, you want to be confident before him, not shrinking in shame. So two ways John is saying here that people will react at Jesus' return. They will react either with confidence or they will shrink from him in shame. So to be confident here does not mean that you're just confident in who you are and all of the good works that you have performed throughout your lifetime and you're confident in that. To be confident here is the same confidence that uh, the author of Hebrews talks about when he talks about being uh, Christians being confident and drawing near to God in prayer. That's the kind of confidence he's talking about. It's a confidence that, that God hears you that God answers you, that God, that God longs to hear you and longs to answer you, that he is there with you. So just think about some of the prayers. They could have been short or they could have been long. They could have been in fancy language or just plain language. But think about some of the prayers that you offer to God. They are probably words that you would never utter out loud to anybody else because they would sound crazy and ridiculous. But because Hebrews 4.16 says that you can have confidence and drawing near to God, you still pray them. 
because you're confident that your heavenly Father will hear them, no matter how crazy or outlandish or impossible they they sound. So to shrink in shame is best described in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? And the answer to that question of who can stand is no one. Not one of us can stand on our own merit. Not one of us can stand on our own good behavior or uh, any kind words that we might say or how generous we might be. No one can stand unless Christ has intervened on that person's behalf. And this is where the believer's confidence is attained. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We can only have confidence to enter the holy of holies, to enter through the curtain, because of the blood of Jesus alone. That's it. And John says in verse 29 that everyone who practices righteousness can be sure that they have been born of the righteous one. So surety for the Christian comes in the form of reflexive doctrine. Do you live what you believe? Simply. Because John is saying this is, this is a mark of a true believer. And so when held up to what the false teachers uh, have been teaching and living, the mark of righteousness is not evident uh, in their life, in the, in, the, in the life of the Antichrist. They were dependent on their knowledge to save them. I mean, how many of us are like that? We're so smart. We read so many books. We know more about the Bible than most people do, and we bank on that to save us. It won't. These Gnostics were more interested in what they knew rather than who they knew. And so John, once again, makes a strong argument when comparing true biblical Christianity to false doctrine, and he closes with this assurance towards his readers. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. You can be sure of that. So what does this look like? Well, I think uh, an immediate uh, answer to that, an automatic answer is go to the Sermon on the Mount and read Jesus' words there. And that's, that's a picture of what it means to live or to practice righteousness. That is a, a very clear picture. But Paul is also helpful here, and I think this one often gets um, ignored. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, uh, the title in your Bible is probably The Marks of a True Christian, which I love. And I'd encourage you some point this afternoon to meditate on these verses and ask God in prayer to help you pursue these qualities that he calls you to. So let me just read. And you can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let us be those who take the truth of God's word and not only know it, but apply it to every part of our life. To, to, to have a doctrine that is reflection, reflect, uh, reflexive and not just these, these grand things that we know, but these amazing truths that change everything. The gospel does change everything. And that it, it also allows us to stand against opposition, but also readies us for the second advent of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.